Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Bird, director of the Americas program at CSIS and host of the 35 West podcast. With how professional the Mexican but government are we ready? I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, the director of the Americas program at CSIS and the co-host of the 35 West podcast. Latin American and Caribbean countries face mounting risks from natural disasters, with the region ranking as one of the most climate vulnerable areas in the world. Indeed, research from CSIS shows that over the past five decades, natural disasters in the region impacted nearly 300 million people and caused over half a million deaths. With climate change likely to exacerbate these challenges, developing effective strategies for delivering humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, often abbreviated as HADR, is of critical importance in the Western Hemisphere. The Department of Defense and U.S. Southern Command in particular consider HADR to be a key component of their mission in the region, and U.S. personnel have participated in countless disaster relief efforts in every corner of the hemisphere. Yet while the United States remains on speed dial for many countries in the region, innovative approaches are needed, especially as China's advances in the hemisphere threaten to tinge disaster relief response with an element of competition. To dig deeper into current USHADR efforts, as well as areas for improvement, we are joined today by Dr. Pat Patterson, Professor of Practice at National Defense University's William J. Perry Center for Hemispheric Defense Studies. Pat is a specialist in international security and Latin America, as well as co-author of an excellent new report, Weathering the Storms Together, Improving U.S. Humanitarian Efforts. In this episode, we will outline the U.S. approach to HADR, opportunities for improvement, strengthening regional partnerships, as well as what disaster response and relief efforts look like in a region increasingly shaped by strategic competition. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast, Pat. Thanks for having me. Humanitarian assistance is one of the most valuable missions the United States performs in the hemisphere. When disaster strikes in the Americas, Southcom is often the first call for the region's leaders. Pat, could you begin by sketching for our listeners a brief scene setter on what USHADR efforts look like, the actors involved in a typical scenario, and who leads the charge? Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. The Humanitarian Assistance and Disaster Relief, HADR as it's known, is a big part of U.S. foreign policy, as well as for the U.S. national security strategy. It's highlighted in the 2022 national security strategy as one of our most important missions. As I'm sure your audience knows, when these catastrophic disasters strike, whether natural or man-made, they can have really devastating impacts on governments and communities, and not just for the immediate aftermath of the disaster, but also for long-term severe economic, political security consequences that can take years to restore. The most vulnerable nations, of course, are those with fragile government institutions or inadequate resources to react promptly to their citizens' needs. And these can cascade into a series of other problems, such as political populism, economic inequality, and even criminal activity as bad actors take advantage of the situation. So as you mentioned, Ryan, this is a major mission for the United States. And it's a very well-practiced mission, I might add. The United States foreign disaster relief efforts are led by the U.S. aid, specifically by their Bureau of Humanitarian Assistance. For example, in 2021, BHA responded to 82 crises in 69 countries and distributed more than $8 billion to disaster zones. 
The DOD, of course, plays a big role in that because we could bring a lot of airlift and sea lift and command and control and field hospitals and a number of other very important missions in these important hours right afterwards. So it's uh, here's an example. Super Typhoon Haiyan struck the Pacific region in November of 2013. And just to give you a sense of how big these HADR operations are, the U.S. military sent 13,000 military personnel, 66 aircraft, 12 naval vessels, and during the relief efforts, delivered 2,500 tons of relief supplies and evacuated more than 21,000 people outside of the emergency zone. So it's a team effort between U.S. aid leading the efforts, as well as the DOD and other organizations getting involved. It's a true across-the-government effort to respond to these crises. No two crises are the same, and the set of challenges Latin America and the Caribbean confronts today are rapidly evolving and present new demands for disaster response. Climate change promises to accelerate extreme weather events, but these will be different throughout the hemisphere. What are some of the key trends we ought to pay attention to when it comes to how climate change will impact humanitarian needs across the region? Yeah, climate change is a major concern, and under the new Biden administration, it's a major priority. And my work on it here at the Perry Center, leading a, a new climate change course that we're offering May, as well as uh, because of the demand signal, a second iteration in July, we're receiving a lot of questions and requests for assistance on it. Anybody who's paying attention to the effort, Ryan, knows that there are some really severe challenges in front of us. Scientists predict that the meteorological and the environmental conditions will worsen dramatically because of increasing global temperatures. And that's gonna affect not just the Western hemisphere, but across the entire globe. This is a true transnational crisis and a planetary emergency, as some of the scientists have called it. Now, in the Western hemisphere, it's gonna mean a couple things. Atlantic hurricanes are gonna be stronger and carry more rainfall. Heat waves are gonna be more deadly, forest fires more destructive, landslides more frequent, and a lot of other really disturbing examples that have come out of this. And just like any natural disaster will cause a lot of stress on the government's ability to respond to its communities with its assistance when a crisis like this occurs, this is really going to stress out the government abilities and the resources available to the government. There's a couple of ways to think about the climate challenges that we face. Some of them are going to be immediate and near-term responses in, in the immediate and near-term, and others are going to be further down the road. For example, as I already mentioned, the NOAA forecasters, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is predicting that we'll have more Category 4 and 5 hurricanes and typhoons and more stronger storms, larger storms are going to carry more precipitation. So 10 to 15 percent more precipitation coming from those major hurricanes. That translates, of course, into severe flooding, internal displacement, landslides. Heat-related problems are probably my single biggest concerns after studying climate change for the better part of the last decade. Heat waves are already happening. Forest fires, droughts already exist and are going to be exacerbated even further, and they're going to intensify even faster. And then other climate change uh, factors such as sea level rise, biodiversity loss, and a number of others will occur on a more gradual level, but will still have very dramatic impact upon the Latin America and Caribbean communities by 2100. So I think this is perhaps the greatest challenge in the history of humanity, what we're facing in the next couple decades. It's going to require a major transformation of our societies and our energy structures and our transportation and the way we do business with agriculture. 
I think from the HADR perspective, it's going to require a massive mobilization of security forces and the civil defense forces that serve as first responders in these crises. And each of the governments in the region, as well as around the globe, are going to have to think about transforming their government resources in order to build larger, more capable, even better resources units dedicated to these HADR responses. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, so the saying goes. What roles does disaster preparedness and building resiliency play in U.S. HADR efforts? Well, just as you know, the military is really good at planning, and we think carefully about contingency operations. I think that's true across the government as well. So, for example, I'll speak from the perspective of the U.S. Southern Command, who I've worked with for many years, both in uniform and now as a professor. They dedicate a lot of time toward education and exercises. Let me unpack each one of those very briefly. Educating the first responders and the HADR workforce is a really important role because there's a whole bunch of different factors that go into these operations, whether it be defense support for civil authorities, preservation of critical infrastructure, interagency coordination, emergency operations centers, civil military coordination cells, command and control, search and rescue. The list is really, really long about all the skill sets that we need to be prepared for when the crisis occurs. And BHA in particular does a really good job of educating the U.S. HADR workforce. They offer joint humanitarian operations courses, which is a mobile education team that goes around to different organizations and provides a week-long training session on all of these issues. There's quite a few programs here in Washington, D.C. My own uh, William J. Perry Center for Hemispheric Defense Studies offers an annual course on HADR. And that's dedicated toward our foreign partners, because, of course, when these disasters strike, we work very closely, not just with the host nation, but also with other international responders who come to the crisis zone to lend assistance. That's the education aspect of it. There's also lots of exercises we do. And many of your listeners may be aware of trade wins or Cobra Gold and a number of others that we conduct so that we can actually go through the entire process find out where there's gaps or deficiencies, find out that where there's wrinkles that we need to iron out, and then be ready for when the event occurs. We do these frequently, I think, in almost every combatant command. For combatant command, I'm, of course, referring to U.S. Southern Command, U.S. Central Command, U.S. Pacific Command, and others. For example, in the SOUTHCOM region, we offer and have offered for more than 20 years the trade wins exercises. And the most recent one occurred in 2022, was co-hosted by Belize and Mexico, involved 1,800 participants, 23 Latin American and Caribbean nations were present. We flexed all of the DOD as well as the U.S. government response, as well as with our partner nations. And that's a really great way to go through the entire process, make sure it's all working properly so that when something occurs, we are ready to go. I'll give you a, a quick vignette of of what happened in one of our recent humanitarian exercises. Our planners were in Guatemala assisting Central American forces with one of these forthcoming exercises. It was called Fuerzas Aliadas Humanitarias. In English, that means humanitarian allied forces. It's an exercise we've run for a long time. In this case, Ryan, they chose to, to use a volcanic explosion in Guatemala as the scenario. They practiced evacuating personnel. They practiced mobilizing resources in Guatemala, foreign assistance coming in from other Central American nations. And the exercise was conducted in a very robust 
real-world manner. Just a few weeks later, Volcan de Fuego, which is one of the two big volcanoes just outside Guatemala City, erupted, and it sent the pyroclastic flows racing down the mountain, almost like a tsunami of lava and landslides. And it was almost exactly the same scenario that just a few weeks prior, the U.S. Southern Command and our host nation partners had practiced. And for that reason, we were able to save a lot of lives, evacuate uh, individuals from those nearby towns very effectively. And really, our planners and our logistics professionals really hit this one right on the top of the nail because they predicted exactly what was about to happen, prepared for it, rehearsed for it, and then were in position, ready to execute it when Volcan de Fuego erupted in 2018. Remarkable timing, Pat. The COVID-19 pandemic showed us that the need for humanitarian assistance goes far beyond responding to extreme weather events. We've discussed so far mostly extreme weather events. But what is Southcom's strategy for assistance with public health emergencies? Southcom is well prepared, as is each combatant command, more so now than prior to COVID-19. But as you well know, that these kind of global pandemics rear their nasty heads every five years or so whether it be Ebola or Zika or any number of others that have occurred during our lifetimes. And we'll probably see more of these kind of things in the future. So again, it's important to emphasize that these HADR efforts or pandemic responses are led by the U.S. government, normally through U.S. aid, but DOD is then activated as a very capable government agency to respond to these kind of crises. We did a lot of great work we being the U.S. Southern Command staff and uh, leadership, did an immense amount of great work equipping some of our foreign partners, 33 countries in the Western Hemisphere, all the way from the Guatemalan border, Central America, South America, and into the Caribbean, providing field hospitals, providing vaccines, providing a lot of the personal protection equipment, PPE. And so we really are in position because of the DOD ability to respond to these and having all of the features that are necessary for these emergency crises to respond in an effective manner when these pandemics hit. We would be remiss not to mention the dire humanitarian crisis unfolding in Haiti today. Most analyses focus on the security situation in Haiti. However, I'm curious if there is any room for Southcom's HADR efforts in this moment when the Haitian National Police are so weak and the gangs so potent. Yeah, Haiti is a real tough crisis. It's They've been plagued by weak institutional problems and government inefficiencies, a lot of security problems from the gangs that are operating throughout the country. And so as you, your listeners probably know, there's a long history of peacekeeping operations and humanitarian intervention on that Caribbean island. I think, though, Ryan, it goes back to what I mentioned in one of the very first questions about the government's ability to respond to these crises. The governments that are the most vulnerable to these natural and man-made disasters are the ones that are not very well developed or they're developing nations, as the term goes. And Haiti certainly fits that category. It's got poverty levels above 50 percent, probably even higher. The people who are employed work probably working in the informer sector. It's done a lot of environmental devastation by stripping trees off the landscape there, and that makes it very vulnerable to landslides and a number of other issues. So they've had, all the way back to the 2010 earthquake, which was so devastating, and a number of other events since then, including a series of hurricanes, the cholera epidemic, they've just had one incident after another that's required a lot of humanitarian assistance to the island. 
It's what we call in the HADR doctrine as a hostile environment. According to HADR doctrine, a, a situation when our forces respond can either be hostile or permissive. Well, the Haiti environment is certainly very hostile and because of the, the, the violence and the security problems that the island has. So what that means is if outside responders, whether it be the United States or other neighboring countries, respond to a crisis in Haiti, they have to bring a much, much larger footprint of personnel to protect the first responders and provide security and force protection, as well as the HADR efforts. And that really complicates the scenario. You're going to look at an event like the Dominica September 2017 Hurricane Maria strike, when our responders were able to get on the ground there, set up an emergency operations center and start distributing aid very, very quickly. In contrast, we didn't have to have the in contrast to what we saw in Haiti, we did not have to have the security presence on the ground. And keep in mind as well that every single first responder or every single security force personnel that show up also have the same needs as the victims of these crises. They need shelter. They need bathrooms. They need food and water on a, on a regular basis. They need a number of other issues. And all that has to be provided in the midst of a crisis response mechanism that really complicates the situation. So Haiti or any other country that's suffering from such a lack of government resources and a lack of institutional response is really, really a tough situation to get into. The United States has a wealth of experience, expertise, and capabilities for responding to disasters where they manifest. But there are also important areas for improvement, as your recently published report outlines. Early warning systems are fundamental to disaster preparedness and risk reduction. So how can the United States improve information sharing with partner countries when it comes to early warning? That's a great question, Ryan. I think it's the technology sharing that's really critical to these crises. Here in Washington, D.C., we get alerts on our phone all the time if there's going to be high winds, or even this morning I got one for high temperatures that are coming this afternoon in the early spring here in Washington. And those kind of alerts that come either through the phone or through sirens in a town or any number of different ways are really helpful to alert citizens in the region that something bad is coming their way and they should seek shelter or get out of the way or go to higher ground in the case of a tsunami along the coast. A lot of the countries in the Western Hemisphere have not had those kind of early warning systems. And I'll give you an example. Chile, which is one of the most developed countries in the region, had an earthquake right around the same time as the Haiti earthquake back in early 2010. An earthquake struck down along the Talcahuano and Concepcion area. It generated a massive tsunami that washed ashore into many areas. At the time, in 2010, there was no early warning system along that portion of the Chilean coast. Just five years later, because of the lessons learned from that first incident, the Chilean government had installed a series of early warning systems. They had another earthquake generating another tsunami in September of 2015, but this time the people got alerts that it was coming. And in contrast to more than 500 people who died in 2010, less than a dozen died in 2015 because of the response mechanism that was put in place. Those kind of early warning systems, Ryan, are necessary across the entire region and across the entire globe. And they really do save lives because they alert personnel to some sort of crisis that's coming their way. Extra hemispheric partners also have a role to play in bolstering HADR capabilities. Taiwan in particular stands out as a country which is engaged heavily in this space. 
How can these allies be better integrated into regional disaster response architecture? You know, the UN has an amazing system, UN OCHA, it's called, how they respond to these international crises. And the United States it works very, very closely with our UN partners, as well as all of our allies. So Taiwan or Japan or South Korea or any number of other providers for these kind of events, we're already doing a lot of coordination with them. More, of course, is always helpful. And so we just need to continue a lot of the exercises and the rehearsals and simulations that we already do with these foreign partners so they can contribute as well to uh, the crisis. It's not just the United States that's responding to these disasters. It's the entire international community who comes together. And there's an investment that occurs, I believe, in these crisis response. If we can provide assistance to a country that's just been suffered from a devastating calamity, then we can get that country back on its feet faster. There will not, therefore, be repercussions from migration or internally displaced persons or economic and political problems that are associated with these kind of events. And even migration, as we know, if we can solve a problem before it becomes really severe or at least assist in the recovery from the crisis, then we can stop a lot of the migration problems that put a lot of people in harm's way as they try to seek shelter from out of a disaster area. The private sector also has a role to play in streamlining responses to disasters and providing daily necessities for people in need. How can the United States forge stronger public-private partnerships when it comes to disaster response? That's a great question. It's one of the that we identified in our report. Admiral Fowler, who's the former commander of the U.S. Southern Command, has an immense amount of very senior experience on these issues. And one of the things that Southcom does during his time at the helm in Miami as well is what we call public-private partnership. There's a lot of organizations, multinational corporations or others that have what we call an environment, sustainability and governance mandate, ESG, by its acronym. And that means that there's a lot of companies who can provide assistance, or maybe not assistance is the word, but resources to a country that's just been hit by a catastrophe. United Parcel Service, DHL, can distribute bottled water, infant formula, diapers, hygienic materials for people, and issues like that. Using these whole of society responses to a crisis is very welcome, because otherwise it comes out of U.S. taxpayers' dollars. And there's a lot of companies who want to assist with these humanitarian crises by providing their own resources to the crisis zone. Let's shift gears for a second to the United States and any competitors that it might have in this in this space. Compared to the United States, China has allocated far less to HADR efforts in the Western Hemisphere, but it has made advances in recent years. In particular, the PRC has relied on hospital ship deployments while using these to cultivate relationships with regimes like Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. How does China's response to HADR contrast with the United States? What ways can the U.S. shore up its reputation as the preferred partner? We outshine China quite a bit when it comes to HADR responses. They provide really a minuscule amount of aid as compared to what the United States does and some of the aid data that's available says that we provide 40 times more than what the People's Republic of China have spent in the past decade. So that's according to U.S. aid data out of William and Mary College in Virginia. And specifically, it says that China contributed $19 million in humanitarian aid to Latin American Caribbean nations over about a 10-year period, 2010 to 2021. 
In contrast, the United States spent $743 million in just one year, 40 times more than what the what China provided in the previous decade. I have to say, though, Ryan, that in, during a disaster response, I don't think the constituents or the inhabitants of a zone really care where the humanitarian assistance is coming from. The most important thing is to get on the ground, save lives, alleviate suffering, give assistance to injured personnel. So if China is providing that or if the United States is providing that or any other country is bringing that kind of assistance, that's the most important factor in the whole process. But as you mentioned, the United States is in a strategic competition for the future of the world order. And we need to make sure that the United States is recognized for the contributions that it makes. It's a very expensive investment that the United States makes for our foreign partners during these times of crisis. And the United States should be having recognition for it. It's not just because the United States wants to look better than China. It's because we feel sincerely about assisting our neighbors when they get hit by a crisis. And we do this via a couple different means. The USNS Comfort, which is one of our two hospital ships, does periodic deployments into the region. In 2018, for example, they treated 20,000 patients, conducted 600 surgeries during their visits to Ecuador, Colombia, Peru, and Honduras. We also send in teams of doctors and veterinarians and, and specialists into remote parts of the region that are undeveloped or may not have a lot of government presence. These are called humanitarian civic assistance events. And for example, in this coming year, we're scheduled to do about 70 of those visits across Central America and the Caribbean, bringing a lot of needed medical attention into areas that are very undeveloped where people need it the most. China has invested extensively in infrastructure throughout the region, including ports, airports, and roads, which will be critical to the delivery of a humanitarian response in times of crisis. Are there any risks, Pat, associated with PRC investment in the infrastructure space and the ability of U.S. personnel to conduct disaster response missions in the future? I don't think it necessarily impacts the disaster relief efforts that we make. It certainly will influence those countries when it comes to geopolitical issues. We know about the competition for control of Taiwan and China, just like Russia has with Ukraine. China is seeking to expand its territory into one of its provinces that are right now outside its sphere of influence to some degree. And so the point about that is that if there's a lot of infrastructure investment from China into areas that uh, heavily need it, that's by itself a really important investment. But if it means that China is expecting these countries to then support its authoritarian efforts in other parts of the world, that's a much more troublesome. So the countries in the region have to understand who they want to team up with as we move further into the 21st century. Does it want to be a democratic institution and government that respects human rights and international order like the United States? Or does it want to respect and follow the authoritarian practices of Beijing as we move forward? And it's a decision that each of the countries, each of the sovereign nations of Latin America and Caribbean countries have to decide which way they're going to follow. Pat, is there something that we did not cover in this podcast? Anything else that you would like to highlight or add? No, I think we've covered a lot of great territory, Ryan, and appreciate the opportunity to share the results of our report, Weathering the Storms Together, Improving U.S. Humanitarian Efforts, co-authored by Admiral Craig Fowler, the former U.S. Southern Command Commander, as well as myself. It's available on the Atlantic Council webpage, as well as the William J. Perry webpage. 
I guess the last thing I would emphasize is what's coming down the road on climate change. We already touched upon it briefly during our discussion, but the situation is going to get really severe unless we take really rapid and immediate changes to our energy systems and our transportation systems, preventing temperatures from rising to a point where it's perhaps an irreversible climate change, runaway climate change effects. And so right now, the IPCC has predicted that global temperatures are going to reach more than 3.0 degrees Celsius by the end of 2100. Now, recall in Paris in December of 2015, our scientists, international scientists, warned us about not letting temperatures exceed 2.0 and doing everything within our capacity to prevent it from crossing that red line of 1.50 degrees Celsius. If we're headed for 3.0 degrees Celsius by the end of the century, that means a lot of really serious problems. And the role of HADR responses from the United States, from USAID, from the DOD, and from every single country in the world is going to be heightened because of the environmental and meteorological problems associated with climate change. So we need to get ready for what's coming at us. Dr. Pat Patterson, Professor of Practice at National Defense University's William J. Perry Center for Hemispheric Defense Studies. Thank you for joining us on 35 West. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thanks for having me. For you, thank you for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.